Today's show is brought to you by Laser Away. Labor of Love listeners can save up to 75% on laser services at Laser Away. Go to laserawaycom love now to reschedule your free consultation. Today's episode is also brought to you by The Bachelorette. JoJo is back as the new Bachelorette. She's starting a new love story her way, going from Ben to 26 new men, all hoping to be the one. The Bachelorette premieres at a special time, Monday, May 23rd, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central on ABC. Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com. A lot of us have thought about what it would be like to just chuck everything, leave our jobs, leave our homes, and hit the road. Most of us will never get the chance to find out. But my guests today are 36-year-old Corinne Bajaj and his wife, 34-year-old Carrie Bajaj, and that's exactly what they did in 2013. They left their comfortable New York life behind and went on the road, first to Scotland. They learned yoga and meditation in a remote ashram in the Himalayas, and then they spent weeks in silent meditation in India. Carrie, a certified health coach and graduate of Georgetown University, and Karan, who is a best-selling Indian novelist, are here with me today to talk about how they chucked it all. Carrie and Karan Bijaj, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. You two embarked on the kind of journey that a lot of people think about and never actually do. Can you take me through what your thought process was there and what, you know, was the impetus to take this journey? Do you want to start, Kajan? Yeah, a couple of things came together from, I think, both of us. And uh, the first one was that I had for a long time been very interested in the Eastern spiritual traditions because I grew up in India. So I was very interested in yoga, meditation, but I, I, for many years, I'd been dabbling in it, which was fine. But then once kind of like my mom passed away from with cancer uh, just a year before we took the decision to take a sabbatical. And I think that really put my meaning of life kind of questions very much at the forefront. And then I was like, I really need to stop like having this appetizer sample of meditation and stuff and take a full deep dive. So that was, I guess, one catalyst. For most people, though, that, you know, they would something like losing a parent or having something just um, stressful happen in their life does spur them to ask the big questions. I think your answer to that big question is so radical that it's hard, you know, to to kind of get your head around. I mean, I've been reading about your journey and thinking like, in theory, I'd love to do that, but how would I ever get to that point of l- cutting all of those ties, severing all those ties and just leaving? Um, most people would do it maybe in a less dramatic way. <laughs> Carrie, I'm interested to hear you know, how you came along and, and how you understood this. Was it partly for you or were you doing it mostly... 
Well, it's a good question because I had a lot of resistance and Karen teases me about that a lot because it ended up being such a worthwhile and incredible journey. And it's ridiculous to think that I was dragging my feet. But uh, for the reasons you mentioned, I had a job that I really liked and valued and I had an apartment that I liked. I had a dog that I liked. There were all these things holding me and it felt like I understood his meaning of life questions and I really found this idea so appealing that we could go and we could do yoga teachers training. And one way we kept talking about it was a deep dive into these practices of yoga and meditation. And so that was so appealing to me, yet I was very risk averse about it. And I did have a lot of resistance. I needed some convincing. And how were you convinced? Well, um, I don't know. I guess it was just the more we talked about it, the more it was like every obstacle that's keeping us here, we can figure out a solution. We can, my parents can take care of the dog. We can talk to your boss and he may hold your job for you, which he ended up doing. We can find a subletter for our apartment. Like everything was figure outable. So I think that's obviously, I think money is a huge deterrent for people to just take off. I mean, commitments as well. Certainly, if you are a parent or have responsibilities, even to a dog, you know, that those are things that can get in the way. You're in the enviable position of having a job that you could return to, which which most people won't, you know, or don't. Did that make it easier to make the decision? Do you think if that wasn't the case, you might have hesitated more? It started the opposite way. I think if I had relied on having the job when I came back, the job would have most likely said no. So because what I've seen is that if you're not firm about asking and having an opinion, like the moment I even broached the subject for the first time, I remember my boss saying that, can you do three months? Which is very attractive if you are relying on the job to like make that decision for you. But I had already made up my mind that you know that I, it was going to be a year. It's going to be a year. Mm-hmm. So I think it like uh, I was very firm that even if the job doesn't exist, it's going to happen. So I think that allowed them to come through mm-hmm. with keeping it. I should back up. Could you talk a little bit about what your job is and what yeah. you do, and then and then Carrie as well. Yeah, sure. So I work in consumer products, essentially, in marketing brand management. So I was the director of Kraft Foods then, which is interesting because Kerry's a nutritionist and, you know, yeah. <laughs> so I worked for the, I guess, the enemy at that point. Yeah. And Kerry, you... You're... So I'm a nutritionist and I was working with a doctor in New York City who's an integrative uh, functional medicine doctor, so in a holistic practice. Can you walk us through, so you left New York, what did that day feel like? And then you went through three stages of your trip. You went to Scotland, you went to India, you went to an ashram. Walk us through what this year looked like. Yeah, so it was three stages. Uh, The first one was Europe to India by road, essentially, starting with essentially the cheapest kind of flight that we could get, which was to Scotland at that point. And then uh, the second one was to live in India in an ashram. So I'm sorry. So back yeah. up. So Scotland, you get to Scotland via plane. And then what what were you doing there? So the, kind of the plot was that one of the things that was driving a lot of this decision for a sabbatical was that at least I was feeling that 
life had become extremely rational, goal-oriented, predictable, left-brained almost. And part of the like impetus for taking the sabbatical was to become more intuitive and in, in some form, like become more spontaneous and intuitive, both in writing like and in just life overall. So the whole idea was that we won't plan anything at all. So, so, and it was like, it sounds very nice, but it was pretty tough. Mm. And really in Scotland, we just had this first plan that we would have a, we would do like a retreat for five days in a, like in the highland somewhere. And we did that. After a retreat, that we, uh, meditation yeah, retreat? Yeah, like a Buddhist meditation uh-huh. retreat. So we did that for five days. After that, we really had no plan at all. So we just kind of like met some people who were going to UK. So we just went along with them to London. And so it was kind of like, then we started to drift along for a period of time, essentially. Yeah. And what were your rules around technology during your year? How often were you connected to people back home? How often were you checking the internet? How often were you speaking to people on the phone? No, like almost no technology. Like we didn't take any Kindles with us, no phones at all. And the internet was whenever it was available on the road. So there were moments when I, we didn't check the internet at all for like almost six weeks, I think, in uh, when we were in an ashram in India. In Europe, it was a little bit more accessible in some parts, not in places like Bulgaria, we would be off internet and stuff. So it was very variable on when we got it. And what ended up happening is when we had access to the internet, we were using it to plan the next stage of our travel versus really talking to people at home. So you would check in with the important people at home, but you weren't doing these long correspondences. It was more like where, what time does the train leave that goes to Milan that we need to be on? Most people would consider taking a trip the way that you did and not documenting it on social media kind of unheard of like not you know one doesn't no one travels anymore without documenting it did you have the urge to do it did you miss that connectivity at all or was it was it easy yeah it did feel like you were only at times that you're only having half of the experience because you're not telling the whole world that you're doing it But it also makes you be really present in the experience that you're having. We cherish the pictures that we took. And I think we also got to a point where what we were doing was so out of the realm of something that you could really explain to people that it just became ours. And it wasn't about bragging about it or humble bragging about it or telling everyone what we were up to. It got to a point where it was too hard to really convey what was happening on the road. And it changed. In the beginning, I think we had a lot of those emotions. Like, A, we wanted to almost justify what we were up to. So like having a blog every week about these experiences and stuff. So I think that phenomenon happened for almost the first couple of months. Slowly, I think as we got a little bit more silent, the urge to, like, I I think our kind of activities became less... um, I guess social overall, like wanting to share and stuff. We just got more silent overall as progressively as the trip went along. So this was obviously a conscious rule you made prior to the to going that you were not going to be hooked up to your devices. That this was going to be a trip without, you know, social media, email, and all of that. Not actually, to be honest, we didn't really set out with a very explicit rule about that. It, it was very practical. We didn't want to spend too much money on se- international cell phones very practical. The Kindle was a deliberate choice because I think part of what we were feeling was that 
like we are not very emotion uh, physically i guess materialistic in terms of acqu- seeking acquisitions but you kind of get to some level of emotional materialism where you're always constantly seeking knowledge and growth and wanting to become better and reading a lot in in the pursuit of that so to relinquish that was a little bit deliberate to not have to take just one or two books along with you that you keep reading and rereading and rereading again and again so some was deliberate but the others just almost happened as we went along Did you know that the average woman will spend over $10,000 on razors and 72 days shaving in her lifetime? Are you tired of spending all of this time and money on what is also ranked as the most hated beauty ritual? We are too. Good thing our friends at Laser Away have us and our bodies covered. As the nation's top laser hair removal and aesthetic experts, Laser Away offers the most advanced, cutting-edge technology to offer dramatic, permanent results in just a few treatments. Laser Away's treatments are non-invasive, fast, permanent, and can treat all skin tones, leaving you hair-free, carefree, and ready for the last-minute date or a beach getaway. Shave time, not your legs. Get up to 75% off laser services and schedule your free consultation today by going to laserawaycom love. That's laserawaycom love. What was the reaction um, of people in your life when you told them that you were taking off for this year to really, I mean, explore the meaning of life? <laughs> I think it, we can, is that accurate? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would say it was, so there's a difference, like she's Irish and American and I come from an Indian family. I think in an Indian family, you would just express your opinions directly. So my sister and my dad or whatever would like be very open in saying that, what are you doing? You're 35 or you're hitting 35 and you should be having kids and like... You know, and I guess are you depressed? Like they would just say things. <laughs> but I don't think our family was all that different. They just didn't articulate it because I guess Americans it. are more private in some sense. Mm. or I, A little bit more reserved, <laughs> but you kind of could feel that there was some judgment there. Yeah. And they didn't really know how to ask. How about your friends? Unclear, I would say overall. Like um, I remember one guy asking, one friend asking that – is there like a misty mountaintop moment where you're hoping that everything comes clear in a flash <laughs> mm-hmm. and stuff like that? You know, like very unclear about things. Uh-huh. The reactions were a little um, like someone might say, oh, I'm so jealous. But it's not a very nuanced reaction because there's so many different stages of the journey that you wouldn't be jealous of that were uncomfortable or really like – not necessarily that fun in the usual sense that we think of fun as like going out and having dinner and having drinks. So right. so let's talk a little bit about that discomfort. Can you talk about some of the experiences that you had that were very, you did not have the comforts of home. You had really decided very consciously to travel in a way that was anything but comfortable for the most part. How did that test you and how did it test your relationship? I would say that was one of the most challenging parts of the first few months, especially for, I think, Kerry more than me, because we had made a deliberate decision that we would take the cheapest mode of transport everywhere, live in the cheapest accommodation, not as much to save money as much as to, I guess, just practice this idea that we don't need the comforts of New York. But I think the execution of that was very different for me. 
I really relish the adventure of it. And I think our communication was very weak in the beginning, I would say in some form, because you should throw some more well, light on that. Well, like, for example, he could do five nights of overnight travel out of six days. And I just quickly had to communicate that I can't, you know, I can't be on overnight buses. Like, I need to sleep in a bed, you know, maybe every other night. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, my limits kind of came to the surface of, like, I think I'm pretty hardy and resilient, but not as much as him. So I had to speak up about it and what kind of s- plead for mercy <laughs> at certain points. What were some of the m- more uncomfortable? I mean, being on a bus five nights in a row sounds pretty uncomfortable. But other than that, what were some other um, spots or places during the trip where you really were challenged with not feeling at all comfortable? So in the first part, for instance, um, I remember one particular episode where we reached Milan station in the in the night at about 11 train station. The next day, I mean, we didn't really have a plan, but we were going somewhere where the train would leave at six o'clock in the morning. For me, the natural course was to sleep on the station. And that's what I guess we ended up doing because, again, as you said, our communication wasn't perfect in the beginning. So for me, I'd always seen it as we are both equally hardy and and I guess we just didn't communicate. And I think part of what we learned in the journey was this communication being mm-hmm. more deliberate and not ex- expecting that the other person is intu- intu- you know, intuitively getting what you're going through. So, but yeah, so 11 to 6 o'clock, we, would sp- we spent at the station, then went somewhere and then we reached a place in Italy which where public transport is closed on the weekends. And then we had to walk like 25 miles immediately after sleeping. So it's just, you know, stuff like that, like just hardcore physical endurance experiences. Uh Mm -hmm. How did you handle being together for this long and in such intense quarters, but also having these really intense experiences? I can't even imagine, you know, I don't generally spend more than you know, a weekend with my, with my husband, what was, what would you say was your biggest learning, Carrie? So there were definitely ups and downs. I mean, there were times where I know that I was kind of pulling, dragging down the team. And there were times, one that comes to mind, like when we were in the ashram learning yoga in India, um, Karan, in the beginning, his response, um, he had this very strong response to authority because there's a lot of discipline in an ashram and you're following their schedule and their rules and their timetable and the gong rings at 5 a.m. and you have to go to satsang and do your chanting even if you don't want to. And so he got kind of frustrated with that in the beginning. And I got frustrated with his frustration. I felt like you're ruining my experience. And so I think part of the growth was learning to shake that off and have your own experience and not really let someone, you know, to realize how silly it is to blame someone that they're impacting your experience in such a way you know he kind of had to go through what he had to go through as part of his growth and I had to like kind of give the space to let that happen were you guys um, separated at all during the year basically almost three or four months out of this time was segregated Indian ashram living Mm -hmm. and what was the biggest learning for you 
During the segregated Ashram time? Just during the whole year in terms of being in a relationship with Carrie and what what was most challenging. The end of it was that I think we, even those small moments became very deep and profound experiences of unpeeling layers of each other without even trying to. So, and you didn't have any distractions, right? I mean, there wasn't mm-hmm. a lot yeah. else to do. Um, right. Besides. Right. Because there would be like, especially there was a time in India that we'd spent almost two months up in the mountain somewhere where even we had just got out of the ashram. It was just the two of us for almost like a month together with nobody at all near us. So yeah, you, you know, you really, really, really unpeel and understand each other. On The Bachelor, Ben told Jojo he loved her, but her fairy tale ending crashed straight to the ground when he said he loved someone else more and sent her away with a broken heart. It was the most dramatic Bachelor finale ever. Starting on ABC, Monday, May 23rd, JoJo is back as the new Bachelorette. The stunning fan favorite from Texas is leaving her heartbreak behind, going from Ben to 26 new men, all hoping to be the one to make her happily ever after finally come true. Will JoJo finally get the happy ending she's always wanted? The surprises start night one as the guys try to grab her attention right out of the limo to get that coveted first impression rose. A new epic journey of romance and drama is about to begin. The Bachelorette premieres at a special time, Monday, May 23rd, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central on ABC. What would you say, I mean, to talk a little bit about reentry and what life has like been like? You've been back for... Um, two, two yeah, yeah, maybe two years. Two years. Yeah. So, what was the integration back into regular New York working life after being so cut off from all of these comforts, technology, your friends, your family? Was it harsh to re-enter? Very yeah. jarring in the mm-hmm. beginning. Yeah. yeah, like for instance, like your world has shaken up and deepened, but. Like the people around you, somebody would be talking about a new restaurant that's opened up in Brooklyn, which is mm-hmm. very fair. Like that's an event, obviously, for someone. But for you, like your life has shaken up so tremendously. So I think the words start to lose meaning. So th- things uh, like you just can't relate for a long period of time to people, I think. And then you're also, but slowly, I guess you learn to let go of judge. You judge a lot. Your life here versus your life there and people here versus people there. You're in that constant judgment cycle. Do you think it strengthened your marriage? Yeah, very much. I think we have two kids now. Um, so in the two years that we've been back, we have an 18-month-old and a, I guess a one-month-old, two-month-old right now. So so it's been like, I don't know, I think things don't bother us that much because we've gone through very tough circumstances together. So everything feels very easy uh, comparatively. Not, It's not, you know, obviously that easy to have a toddler and infant, but comparatively, right. it feels very manageable. The biggest learning perhaps in the journey for me was to learn to understand, I guess, subtle communication. Like for me, I didn't, as I said, like if somebody is not telling me that they don't want to sleep on the station from 11 to 6, I would assume they're very happy about it. So now <laughs> I guess you're, I guess, picking up somebody's verbal cues and... right. Just we just understand each other a little bit more now. Were there any points during the trip where you questioned and or regretted doing it? I don't know if you regret the whole decision or parts of it, or 
and then you do go through moments of insecurity obviously yeah like especially because i think especially in the us there is a a corporate track and a hippie track almost like i think in many parts of the world like europe for instance i think people bleed in and out of that circuit they work for a few years take a year off i think that's a more accepted practice i think in the us i've seen that people are either working or they are like dropouts sort of a thing very few people are like transcending both worlds so i think there were many moments when i was questioning and i also come from india which is also pretty tight as a uh, there are many moments that i was questioning whether i had become a hippie of some kind or, you know i don't know like those <laughs> moments used to happen when i'd be like how did i become this guy who's sitting in an ashram and chanting like how did that happen so right. like i was a business school engineer like how did all this happen suddenly so yeah there were moments like that that happened quite often how about you kerry i don't think i ever regretted being on the journey i think there's moments also physically when you're traveling where like it feels like nothing is going your way and it's raining and the place where you want to stay doesn't have room and those kinds of like where you feel like the doors are just closing all around you or you don't have bulgarian currency but you need it to <laughs> yeah. get on their little metro those kinds of moments sometimes would hit you really hard or if that would happen and it was thanksgiving and right. you felt like homesick on top of it you know so sometimes it felt like nothing was going your way and you just wanted to be comfortable and you know have a bed that you could call your own that kind of thing i'm curious to hear how your relationship with technology is now that you're back has that has that adjusted at all or are you back to old usage patterns i would say i'm in and out um i can get just as sucked in as anyone but i'm kind of i carry a lot of awareness about how nice it is to step away and so i look for the pockets of time when i can step away and if that means just turning everything off for a weekend or spending a few days in an ashram just looking for those opportunities to unplug a little bit and knowing how beneficial that is for me yeah i'd say just that there's a slight delay in the action reaction cycle than before so earlier i would get sucked in like you know uh, into work email or whatever i would just get sucked in now i still might get sucked in but there is a spontaneous awareness that i'm getting sucked in i think mm-hmm. do you think there's a way for couples who aren't going to aren't going to choose to go on this kind of trip or can't go on this kind of trip like what would you say is the biggest takeaway that you would recommend that even if you are a harried city dweller in a relationship who can't take off for a year what is something you can do that you both learned and that you could do in your real life i would say build the muscle with smaller more meaningful vacations i think too often the pattern that i see is that people will go from their comfortable lives to a beach resort in the caribbean in which you're really taking the same identities the same baggages the same attachments to just a different location I think there's a lot of power in a 10-day silent meditation retreat that you took together for instance or a a 5-day camping trip like things that dissolve the mind completely mm-hmm. and dissolve your sense of self that you do together I think that fuses you better makes the relationship stronger it truly gives you distance from your life and I think you start building the muscle with that smaller and, and more meaningful vacations yeah. and novelty is always good for relationships especially long-term ones Exactly mm-hmm. yeah. How about you Carrie what would you say 
I think in our case, we did come from really different spiritual backgrounds. And so finding some place where we could have a spiritual practice that could be ours was really nice for us. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of people. You know, I grew up Roman Catholic. And so we kind of found that through yoga and meditation. And it was important because we were starting a marriage and starting a family. And to have some common ground, I think will really serve us well through the years. Thank you so much for being on the Labor of Love today. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. As always, if you'd like to be a guest on our show or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love. Thank you.